Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVIDAID. This episode features the live Q&A we hosted in our COVID-19 support community, and it features Gemma Sewell from Parents United. They've been campaigning for a sensible, safe, and sustainable approach to UK schools amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. We spoke to her to find out more, including advice for those concerned. I hope you enjoy our chat, and I'll be back afterwards with more about both Parents United and COVIDAID. Hello, and welcome to the COVIDAID live Q&A, the latest in our series of regular events on COVID-related issues on our COVID-19 community platform. I'm delighted to be joined by Gemma from Parents United, uh, which has been campaigning for a sensible, safe and sustainable approach to UK schools. Um, so to begin with, it would be great to know a bit more about yourself uh, and your role at Parents United. Okay, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So we started um, Parents United as a Facebook group actually back in May 2020 after there was um, some news of uh, leaked plans for children to go back to school, when, what we considered to be too early. I was already doing um, blogging and I bumped into the campaign founder or the group founder, Tony, um, and, and we kind of took it from there. In terms of, of putting forward proposals really to policymakers as to what, what could be done, what was being done in other countries, what did people feel would be helpful um, to keep case rates down? What would make parents individually feel better? Um, and particularly come September, when the requirement was for everybody to go back, um, you know, how, how this could have worked. Um, we didn't have much of what we asked for, but some of it came, came to fruition. Um, and, you know, ultimately what we've developed into is a support group because people have still got concerns and, it's about the individual impact very often, how people feel about the fact that if they've got somebody in their household who's clinically vulnerable, um, and that might be a child, or it might be an adult, or it might be a grandparent even. Um, but even people that aren't in that position, people like myself, you know, it's still concerning to send your child into an environment where what could be being done to make things less risky appears not to be being done. And that feels unacceptable, particularly when we're not being given the choice or the support to make um, safer choices for our families. Mm -hmm. And this might sound like an obvious question, and to some people it is, and some people it doesn't seem to be, but why is it important to further protect teachers and children. I know there's some people out there who seem to think there's less risk to kids and with teachers that maybe there's already protections in place. Well, the protections that, that were in place, like bubbles, which stop people from having so much contact, they're, they're gone. Um, there's really very little in place now. Um, what's the risk to children? Well, although they may be lower risk, that doesn't mean that they're no risk um, in terms of how the virus affects them. It does still... Um, kill a, 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 some children. Um, there's about a thousand children a month still being hospitalised, which is a shocking statistic that I think many people don't know. Um, in terms of their, their part in spreading, very much it's the case that if you're putting large numbers of people in quite small environments for the number of people that are in them for prolonged periods of time, um, in buildings that don't very often 
very, don't have very good ventilation, um, even if you open the windows, that's unreliable um, in terms of the ventilation you get in there, their contribution then to the spread of coronavirus overall, as well as the risk to the people in those environments is quite significant. And they don't have the choice to work from home like adults do. So we can't thin out um, the number of people in those spaces. And I think you mentioned some of those there, but what do you think are the main problems with schools at the moment? As you say, ventilation, um, absolutely. Um, and the fact that the, we can't even monitor that ventilation because the CO2 monitors that were meant to be on their way and, and in all the schools by now haven't appeared or in very small number. Um, and anyway, they need to be shared across classrooms. And that can be confusing in terms of assessing each individual classroom because you haven't got a consistent way of monitoring that ventilation. Um, the fact that you haven't got close contacts isolating, that's been quite telling. I know that isn't just in schools, um, but because the population that we're talking about is not for the large part vaccinated, despite the fact that it's available, that means that the spread and the number of cases in the, in the school age, age groups, um, and then you haven't got the people sitting around them isolating. So there's, there's very little to stop that once it's in a school really taking hold and becoming uh, a large outbreak as opposed to the odd case here and there, which when we had isolation of contacts, then it seemed that in not in all cases, but it was relatively possible to contain it um, and therefore not get it running through the whole school. You might get a fair amount in one year, but not necessarily through the whole school. That's, that's gone now. Once that isolation went, that, that really um, was the end of that. Um, and just the fact that people are so close together, actually, I mean, even take the ventilation question out of it, it still matters if you're close to somebody. And kids are touching elbows. There's not much space in a school. You've got about half the space in a classroom per person as you have in a working environment as a legal minimum. And, you know, they're, they're close. They're very close and they are breathing directly each other's air, let alone what's hanging around in the overall space. I know you're involved with the COVID is airborne kind of promotion. Uh, why, why do you think that it still seems that there's a lot of people who aren't fully aware of that? aspect of things or underestimate how important it is. Is that something that you've encountered and, and why do you think that is? I think it's inadequate messaging. So it was very clear actually, I went to the supermarket earlier and there's some people in there who very clearly want to protect themselves. Um, they're wiping down their trolleys, they're using loads of hand sanitizer and they're wearing maybe a face shield, maybe a mask, but it's all kind of baggy. And there's no, and face shield doesn't really doesn't do very much at all when you're in an indoor, indoor environment. Um, so they, the people just don't seem to be aware that this is how it spreads, that it hangs in the air like smoke and that a well-fitting mask matters and the filter on the mask makes a difference as well. So the best protection that you can get is from an FFP2 grade mask, um, might be a reusable, might be a single use, but even the ones that we use, well, we see most commonly used by people. So the surgical masks, you still see people with big gaps down the side. And actually all it takes is maybe using one of the mask fitters that you very often get in the box of masks that you can just put your straps on at the back of your head. That can get you a better fit. 
just spreading out the mask, that can get you a better bit fit. Or even better, and this was found by the Center for Disease Control in America, if you put a three layer cloth mask over the top of a surgical mask, that can give you, as long as it's well fitting, that can give you almost as much protection as an FFP2 mask. And these are things people have got and are just not aware that they can take that higher level of protection. I think it is good that the government is putting out some, some decent messaging, the, the behaviour of ministers and people in parliament aside and not wearing masks and all of that. Actually, the campaign that's come out in the last week or two around airborne transmission and the fact that it does hang in the air like smoke, and if you're in an indoor environment with poor ventilation, it builds up and the risk increases of you infecting people in that room who aren't necessarily in close range of you and the opening a window makes a difference. But there's so much more that could be done. There could be so much more conversation in the press to make this general knowledge. And then that will actually tumble down to places like schools. Because if teachers understand that when it says in the guidance, you need to open a window, but maintain thermal comfort, maybe you get the children to put their coat or their blazer on before you close the window. Maybe the fact that it says in the guidance, you can have it open a tiny bit, maybe try that first, because actually when it's cold outside, you get a better rate of air exchange. If that's well understood, that you only need to have that window open a tiny bit or for a short period of time, actually people might negotiate with it a bit more rather than just dismissing it something that they personally don't do. And then thinking about the kind of more recent kind of history and where we are right now, then um, who currently is involved with Parents United in terms of the, I know you've got various communities and different platforms and what have you been up to recently? Um, so we have got the group as in about 23,000 parents and carers um, who specifically discuss school safety and their concerns regarding their family and they uh, very often the support comes from within that community. We do also have a learning community. So where families, and some of them have been given authorised absence from their schools, but they haven't necessarily been given learning support. We have a group where people who are in that position discuss learning resources and maybe how to um, encourage their children to engage with the learning material um, and to be able to to get the best out of their, their home learning experience that they can um, and we also have we work on twitter a fair bit so that we work with scientists so we can really understand the information and what's relevant and what's not it, it would it would be impossible really to to run our group as a safe space without understanding good information um, and what is misinformation um, and supporting people with finding, for example, good information around vaccination. Um, so there's a great um, uh, group who are on Twitter and TikTok called Project Halo, and they're a group of doctors. And whenever we get something crop up in the group where somebody says, actually, I'm, I'm pregnant, and I don't know whether I want this vaccination. Um, while there's lots of scientific research and papers and articles and things that we could throw at people actually sometimes what people want is a nice reassuring video from someone who clearly knows their stuff who can cover that that um that information in a really accessible and reassuring way so we use other people's resources from twitter draw it into facebook um, and help people 
um, to, to understand what their choices and their risks are and how they can protect themselves. Um, and then I do a lot of work on the website where we put up information and, and, and we're developing that at the moment further, um, but to make sure that people have got support um, so that they, they know it's really signposting which organisations to go to um, if they have difficulties, be it with income or health or um, whatever it might be. Um, and also Fresh Air Schools is part of that website and also on Twitter. Um, where we work to understand the ventilation side of things um, and masks and filters and CO2 monitors and all that kind of stuff. So we're busy. I would say so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what would you say for yourself has been some of your most significant achievements to date? For myself, um, I, we're a team, really. Um, I, I think the, the biggest things that we've had are the work that we've done with Public Interest Law Centre and the Good Law Project, and then being able to achieve um, good, a good outcome for some families individually in terms of them having been um, uh, pursued for fines uh, over school attendance, regardless of their personal situation, really not, not supporting that. Um, and also general guidance for families who might find themselves in the position of, of needing to consider um, what to do about school attendance. I, I need to say as well that a lot of our, um, our work behind the scenes is about supporting parents where they have those difficult conversations with their schools and they need really, what, what everybody wants is for a good relationship to be maintained and actually a compromise to be met. And the group's very good at generating these ideas, but very often we'll discuss with people what the options might be. So it's not a question of just send your child in, deregister if you're threatened with a fine, that kind of thing. But actually, you know, can you discuss with your school about your child wearing a mask? Can you discuss with them the opportunity to sit next to an open window or um, for there to be a staggered drop off so the parent isn't in a situation where they're surrounded by lots of people? You know, there are things that can be done and, and it's reliant on relationships and being able to communicate well. Um, and that's often where our support manager comes in, in, in helping people to write letters. So as a campaign, I think our, our, our successes tend to be where we get good outcomes for people. Um, yeah. No, it's brilliant. I, I love the collaborative nature of what you're speaking about as well. I think it's something that's really seems to be more prominent from lockdown the way that groups have been working together. Um, I was wondering in terms of what would you say you're looking to achieve going forward in terms of those kind of bigger goals? I think that we continue our work as far as, as support goes. What I would hope is that we can make progress with getting ventilation improvements, getting those CO2 monitors, getting it into schools, and also for people to generally understand, but particularly people who work in schools, that the airborne nature of the virus is such um, that actually that's the main route of transmission. And if we can do something about that, we'll make good headway. We'd of course like to see other things come in, like again, um, the, the isolation of close contacts, but I think we've got to be realistic about what might actually happen. And the ventilation aspect of this, and perhaps the masks aspect of this, in terms of action people can take to support themselves and the schools they work in or their children go to 
um, and therefore the wider community and the nation as a whole, I think that's a realistic goal. Um, and I think uh, we will, as a team, continue to work on that. Yeah, and then I noticed uh, there's mention of the classroom of the future and what that could look like. And I'm interested in the idea of, of that because it's also something that is applicable, obviously, to COVID-19 and how we cope with that. But I think it also has implications around accessibility and other types of illness and disease as well. Yeah, and, and indoor air quality is a huge part of that. And it, it, this, this is a, a complicated or complex um, issue ventilation. We're really scratching the surface when we talk about trying to um, prevent the spread of COVID-19 by using things like air filters um, and ventilation. Actually, indoor air quality is incredibly important for many illnesses and not just airborne ones, whether it's inflammatory diseases, heart um, issues, cancers. Um, in terms of pollution, for example, it's related to that as well. So how much ingress we get of pollution into our environments, which obviously means that we need to deal with pollution outside as well. Um, but air pollution kills 7 million people worldwide every year. I mean, it's enormous. It's a very long road. It's a very big subject that interacts with lots of different people and, and lots of different campaigns. But I think if we can get anything out of this pandemic, um, aside from actually some things like working online and, and collaborating, I think those are really good outcomes as well that we could continue to build on. But if we're going to get anything out of this, I think making our buildings healthier is a very good outcome to get. I saw an interesting um, uh, statistic the other day, according to Orla Hegarty, who is uh, an architect from Ireland, that um, the majority of infections that have happened in Ireland have happened in just 400 buildings, just 400. It, it's a big factor, far bigger than people realise, the ventilation and indoor air quality question. Yeah, and I was wondering, <clears throat> with this the case, why, why do you think that there can be and continues to be such resistance to some of the measures you propose? Because a lot of them seem pretty straightforward and, and shouldn't be controversial, but mm. are. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah, I think money comes into it, if we're honest. I think, um, the, you know, buildings are a building stock and they all vary. So there is complexity to it, to be fair. But I think also there's this desire to just kind of pretend that this is all going to go away if we do vaccination. And it isn't that simple because it takes time to vaccinate people, because vaccinations wane and because they're not perfect um, and so therefore it's a bit inconvenient to wait around until we get enough vaccinations in our arms and enough doses in people um, it's a bit inconvenient not to to just have people come into our spaces with, you know and act as normal fill our restaurants up just to the same extent as we as we build them in the first place. And of course it's inconvenient, of course it's expensive and business is very important. It puts food on our tables and brews over our heads. But I think that it's completely unfair on the public not to tell them what is vital health information actually. Um, you know, and we manage it with other complex um, uh, discussions vaccination for example is actually quite a complex thing but we managed to distill and simplify those messages tell people why it's important 
tell people what they can do to protect themselves, tell people what risk they're at if they don't take this health measure. And yet we aren't doing that with ventilation at the kind of, of um, with the kind of gusto that we're doing it with vaccination. There is this over-reliance and actually what we need are multiple layers. We know that this isn't going to go away with vaccination alone. And actually something like masks is cheap. People have already got them. They've just got to use them properly. Opening a window is free. But if you tell people how to do it most effectively, like opening a window at each end of the room so they get a cross breeze, opening it a little bit so they don't get too cold, but they get enough ventilation coming in, then, you know, why not? I agree. <laughs> Certainly. Now, uh, we've got some great questions from the community. Uh, if anybody on, on the uh, Q&A here right now wants to ask extra questions, then now's the time to do so via chat or you can raise your hand. Uh, the first question we have is from uh, well, another Gemma. And are there differences in different parts of the UK? Um, and are, yeah, are those things that you've noticed so far? As in the, the guidance and the way that schools open and the different, yeah. I mean, Scotland's been quite mm -hmm. different at different mm -hmm. points. Um, so they've kept um, face coverings. So did Welsh, Wales at one point. Wales had a, um, a fire break when the rest of the UK didn't. Yeah, and, and that actually makes our job quite difficult because, of course, people join a Facebook group without thinking about, about that, and we would never tell them not to join over it, but it can cause a bit of confusion, actually. Um, I would say that England is the worst by quite a long chalk in terms of when it's got rid of measures um, and how those have been phrased. They've often been phrased as restrictions um, rather than as ways to protect our children. Um, yes, and that remains, it remains the case, yeah. both Scotland and Wales. Uh, Phoebe asked, um, have you noticed that clinically vulnerable, uh, I'm sorry, clinically vulnerable children and adults have been ignored? If so, why is that and what can we do? I have. Um, there's been really very little at any point um, uh, allowance for that. We did a, 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 um, a petition quite early on, I think it was around about September last year, saying, you know, clinically vulnerable parents, don't, don't find them. That's ridiculous. And it got about 220,000 signatures. People who are in that position know that this is the case. Um, what can we do? It's keep making a noise, I think, um, and, and uniting between, um, for example, uh, disability groups and clinically vulnerable groups um, to continue making that noise and getting articles out there so that the wider public understand. I think there's this. There's been various different narratives, haven't they? It's only the very sick that are that are affected. People aren't just sick or not sick. You've got a huge variation in between, and you can have a condition that makes you very vulnerable to COVID, but nobody would consider you somebody that didn't have a lot of life to live um, or a, a, a lot of value in your life. So um, I think keeping making that noise supporting various different groups and and and, um, and campaigns um, and making it known that we're still here um, and actually you know if you're if you haven't 
maybe had your booster, then maybe you need a bit of extra consideration if there's a lot of cases in your schools. Yeah, and I think that's something that we've noticed in terms of sometimes people talk about pre-existing conditions as though that makes some difference for the you know quality of life that's in the experiences and what that means for it to be affected. Mm -hmm. um, final question is from Tracy, and actually this ties into something else I was going to ask anyway. So she says, I was going to speak to the head teacher at my son's school, but I wasn't sure what to say, what's best and how can I persuade her? So that ties into, I was also wondering in terms of parents, grandparents, carers, people who are watching this and wondering what they can do in terms of their own schools that their children are attending, then what advice would you have and what can they do? Are we saying people that want their children to go in, but want to see improved safety measures? Because people have different sort of approaches. That's kind of how I'm understanding that question. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that putting forward, putting, putting your toe in the, in the water and, and starting with a friendly approach is a good way to go seeing if you can have a friendly chat about it, because that relationship is critical to getting somewhere with that conversation. Um, we have seen people being able to do fundraising among their PTAs. It's not common, but it's starting to happen for things like CO2 monitors and air filters. And if the school's on side, because they, ultimately they've got to accept these things and use them. But if the school is on side, then that gives you a much better chance of making that happen. Um, talking to them about the window opening. If you notice that that isn't happening, perhaps asking what ventilation is in place in the school, because it may not be that there is no ventilation. It might be mechanical ventilation, which actually can give a more consistent um, uh, volume of, of ventilation than opening windows would do. And they may well have had a ventilation engineering and had that assessed and know that there is a flow rate of 10 litres per second per person, and therefore that actually they're doing the very best they can do. But you're not going to know unless you ask, and you're possibly not going to get as positive an answer or as fluid a conversation if it starts off on an uncomfortable footing. So establishing as good a relationship as you can and asking those questions about the ventilation, whether it's been assessed, um, and where could we take it next to make it better as a school, as a community? How can I help you do that? That's what. Yeah, and uh, to end with, um, it would be great to find out more about your plans for the future with Parents United, uh, where people can find out more about the work you're doing and become part of your community. Okay, so um, in terms of our plans, it's a question of what happens. In, in, in case rates and so forth, but I think we really will continue to be stepping up that fresh air message um, and appealing to policymakers to make people aware of just how important airborne transmission is and that we do need CO2 monitors and we do need filters where they're necessary going into schools. And we'll be doing various bits of press as we can and, and, and things on the website around that as well as upping our, um, our support um, elements as well on the website. Um, in terms of where people can find us, we've got a website that's got all our links on. Um, we are on Facebook though, our Facebook um, group is Parents United UK and we can be found on Twitter, um, both as Fresh Air Schools and as Parents United as well. 
thanks so much to Gemma for her time. For more information, advice, and details on how to get involved, you can find the Parents United website at parentsunited.net. That is parentsunited.net. And if you haven't heard of us, COVID Aid is the UK's national charity dedicated to supporting all those significantly affected by the COVID 19 pandemic. We provide a range of supportive services, advice, and information, including hosting our COVID 19 support community, where we host courses and events such as this QA on a diverse range of topics. Please visit covidaidcharity.org, that is covidaidcharity.org, and you can join our community at community.covidaidcharity.org. We'll be back soon with another episode, and until then, please take care.